I got all, I got all, all the fucking work I need. I got all, the fucking work I need. I got all, the fucking work I need. I got all, the fucking work I need. The American Vandal, from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I'm Matt Siebold. In the summer of 1864, Sam Clemens took a job as a beat reporter for the San Francisco Morning Call. The job reliably paid him $40 a week, the best steady income he'd had since he got chased off the Mississippi River at the outset of the Civil War. The work was drudgery, but it was stable drudgery, and he was initially exceedingly glad to have it. But as I detailed in our season one episode about his conflicts with the San Francisco police, Sam was incensed when the editor of the newspaper squashed his reporting about the vicious stoning of a Chinese laundryman. He resigned soon thereafter, and what followed was a period of destitution, self-destruction, and depression including open contemplation of suicide. During this period, Clemens survived, barely, as a freelance writer. The style of his published work matured markedly, in part because of its uninhibited punching up against police, politicians, and other entrenched powers. He came out of this period as Mark Twain, a comedic writer with a national reputation. Relieved of oversight from any specific editor, he was free to market his peculiar brand of burlesque to whatever publisher would take it. And after many months, both he and they discovered that there was a remarkable public appetite for such work. His San Francisco period is but one iteration of a cycle which is evident throughout Twain's career as he periodically bucks against the appropriation of his labor by publishing houses, promoters, periodicals, and other capitalists, even as he sometimes grows quite wealthy by contracting with these enterprises. He continually fights to wrest ownership and autonomy over his intellectual property and creative labor, but whenever he succeeds, he is, at least temporarily, paralyzed by the stress of self-determination the uncertainty and precarity which comes with depending wholly on his own entrepreneurial, managerial, and investment instincts. From the moment he resigned the San Francisco Morning Call, Twain is a gig worker, a lot he shares with the majority of Gilded Age Americans. The labor movement of the late 19th century, alongside industrial expansion, created first union contracts and then a middle class that was more than just a commercial fantasy. But as Twain's metaphor, the Gilded Age, suggests, the alleged post-war prosperity from the 1860s to the 1890s floated atop an enormous working-class population whose only options were low-wage, at-will employment or irregular subcontracted gig work. The deindustrialization of the past half-century, brought about by union busting, has shrunk the middle class and corresponded with a return to precarious gig work as the primary mode of American labor, now organized around tech platforms. In this episode, 
I'll be talking with two scholars committed to studying the platform economy from the perspective of gig workers, whose labor conditions and economic interests are often obscured. Heather Berg is Assistant Professor of Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at Washington University of St. Louis. Her first book, Porn Work, was published last year. It traces the history of porn work with special emphasis on the transition from the studio system to the platform economy and draws heavily on extensive interviews with active workers. Heather also recently edited a special issue of South Atlantic Quarterly under the title Reading Sex Work. It came out in the summer of 2021. Michelle Chihara, making her third appearance on The American Vandal, is Associate Professor of English at Whittier College. We are frequent collaborators, including co-editors of the Rutledge Companion to Literature and Economics. But on this occasion, we'll be focusing primarily on her recent study of the rideshare industry. This study, titled Radical Flexibility, Driving for Lyft and the Future of Work in the Platform Economy, was published in November of last year in Distinction, a journal of social theory. For more about our guests, including links to their work and a bibliography of sources mentioned in this episode, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash gigwork. I want to start with a kind of meta question, which is what it's like to work on work. Uh, <laughs> one of the reasons I wanted to kick off this specific series with a conversation with both of you is that you're treating work as a critical object. And to do so requires a, a word that Michelle uses in her piece, reorienting. I think reorienting a humanist inquiry itself. At the most basic level, you're both doing field work, conducting interviews, in Michelle's case, impersonating a prospective rideshare driver. <laughs> and Heather, you explicitly resist the inclination uh, to treat porn as a text and thus to fall back on your training as a literary critic or cultural studies professor, or critical theorist. And so you both embrace identities that um, like ethnographer or journalist, which would be anathema to many human humanities scholars. Right? And so firstly, I wanted to, uh, to ask you, what is the motivation for this kind of work, for reorienting not just work as the critical object, but the method of work in pursuit of that critical object? That's such a good question. Yeah, I mean, I think um, for me, it's not such a disciplinary shift. I was trained in feminist studies. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my engagements are like very much committed to the humanities, but but I'm I'm trained interdisciplinarily and I I went into my training wanting to talk to people about their jobs. I was just so taken by like Studs Terkel in, in undergraduate. And I just mm -hmm. thought if I could just do that, which of course is not possible to do so in earn tenure, but that's what I wanted to do. So it wasn't so much a kind of uh, methodological shift for me, but to your earlier question of, of what it means to work on work, for me, the thing that is so sustaining about, you know, putting up with the rest of, of labor conditions in academia is that is that exactly that process of talking to working people about about their hacks and their struggles. Mm. Well, you asked kind of about the the ethnography portion, and I've had explicit conversations with other academics about the way that I approach my work. And of course I was trained in English with you, Matt. <laughs> And I, I was thinking when I got into this about representations of 
work, but also the way that companies like Lyft were representing themselves, were telling the story of themselves. And a lot of that had to do with the way they represent tech work. And I started thinking about Lyft by thinking about its representation of driving for Lyft as a, a tech economy job, that there was something so new about what they were doing. Uh, and that, that cuts across a lot of different aspects of the representations that I started thinking about. Before I went back to grad school, I worked as a journalist for a long time. And I thought a lot about the way journalists treat both dot-com workers and other kinds of workers. The economists that I think about all the time, behavioral economists, also talk to workers. And part of what they're doing is saying that they can represent why people work and how they work in their research. And taxi cabs were one of the original study topics for behavioral economists. And they are, were also the economists who were first working with Uber and Lyft. Across all of these people, journalists, economists, and cultural studies people, I kind of felt like people weren't talking to the drivers enough. That was the fundamental reason I was like, you know, I'm just going to interview some drivers. Um, and then I had the journalistic skills to do that. And and I, I crucially, <laughs> I represented myself to Lyft as being interested in driving, but I didn't misrepresent myself to the drivers that I spoke with. I told right. them who I was. And I, I represented myself to them as a journalist and an academic. And the especially the drivers who were working also as influencers were excited to talk to somebody in journalism. <laughs> I actually I have a question for Michelle about method, yeah. um, which is the, like, so something that I found so refreshing in your piece was your commitment to meeting drivers where they are when they say what their commitments are. And that seems so often lacking in scholarship on gig work. And I wonder if for you, uh, talking to real people made it harder to be condescending. <laughs> I do wonder sometimes <laughs> if the method, if it creates that kind of content shift. How do I say this diplomatically? Well, let me, let me say first that one of the things I love about your book, which is phenomenal, by the way, is the kind of categorical refusal to judge the, the way people decide to work and the decision to work. I think that before I started this and, and other work that I've done, I kind of, I kind of have a, almost like a, it's like a very immediate allergic reaction to a, a way that a lot of different scholars can be condescending. Mm -hmm. But in the particular way that I think we're approaching our topic, there's a the kind of accusation of bad faith or, mm -hmm. And, and you can see this in even Marxists, right? Who should be mm -hmm. on the worker's side, right? <laughs> but it's that, you know, oh, the only reason you do your job is because they pay you and you don't have to love your work and it doesn't matter if um, you want to love your work and that kind of stuff. And even in some very, I think, important and useful critiques of work and how capitalism gets in there and gets you to imagine that you should be more flexible and you should be more creative in order to have a job, right? Even in some of those critiques, I think it's important not to condescend to what people feel about their work. So the way you approach it, you call it dialectical thinking, right? To try to see it's both and. Like the pleasure can be real and it can be a connection to refusal and to a resistance to alienation. Um, and it's, it's vitally important, I think, not to talk down to that. At the same time that we have to understand how all kinds of different economic pressures are getting in there to use that pleasure, to use that uh, against us. So I 
I never want to be condescending. <laughs> but I also don't, I don't want to be condescending readers either um, mm -hmm. when I'm thinking about texts. And, and this is, you know, this rages across all kinds of debates in English, right? About mm -hmm. how should you think and talk about fandom, pleasure in reading, mm -hmm. you know, how that relates to the economics of, of texts and how they operate. As Michelle was pointing out, Heather specifically uses the, the terminology of sort of porno dialectics. And in both of your work, there is this paradoxical rationalization at the center that you are trying to parse out. For Michelle, I think it's a question of flexibility, right? That, that gig work, on the one hand, offers the kinds of flexibility that a nine to five salaried, the kind of conventions of 20th century labor did not. But at the same time, that flexibility oftentimes is exploitative or at least sets up opportunities for, for exploitation. And for Heather, there is around the, you know, the word work itself, there is potential to uh, legitimize porn work, right? <laughs> and, and by legitimizing it, give those workers protections that they need and that have been denied to them in previous eras. But on the other hand, to turn it into work is to perhaps rob it of some of the creative and flexible potential that it perhaps had <laughs> prior to the gig work era. And so I would hope I was hoping both of you could sort of talk about uh, you know, those dialectical tensions that you think are at the center of your interest in these topics. Yeah, I mean, I think on this question of legitimization and the, and the protections that might afford. I want to turn us back again to this moment in Michelle's essay where she reminds that the, the kind of straight job or what I call straight jobs, non-sex work jobs, the kind of non-gig work in, in this context that so many labor scholars kind of nostalgically look back to might also stiff you on payday. And I think, I was, I think that this reminder is so crucial because there's this sense in conversations about sex work especially, but gig work more broadly, that it is a rejection of the kinds of stability that are afforded workers in mainstream. And I think one of the most crucial interventions of so many of my interviewees is to say that straight jobs also grind, but, but not only that, they also find themselves outside the ambit of labor law because so much labor law is not enforced. And again, you know, Michelle's saying like Marxists should know better. Absolutely, Marxists should know better <laughs> that most laws governing the workplace are not enforced and thus that workers aren't stupid to seek flexibility rather than the kind of elusive protections that nominally, you know, govern the office park. And I'm particularly fascinated by that in this moment, you know, as we're almost two years into the pandemic and most academics who are engaging this work are in their own workplaces in which basic occupational health law is not being observed and in which if they get sick at work, they have no recourse to protection and will still come to my book talks and say that porn workers have given up all the protections of straight jobs in order to have this illusory access to flexibility. And so I just think that that dynamic is fascinating. But Matt, to your question about, about the dialectical tensions, a crucial piece there is just to think about the ways that that all workers are running running up against these double binds. That this isn't unique to gig work. It's certainly not unique to porn work. But I do think that different workers have a longer historical memory for negotiating those double binds, and that some workers who have decided that legitimization won't pay have uh, figured out other hacks that that 
get them where they need to go that might be instructive for for the rest of us. Yeah. When I was first interested in talking about lift, people were already talking about, oh, be careful, they're changing their bonus structure. The early bonuses that they got people to drive with are going to go away. And the workers were talking about that from the get-go. They knew, and they were just kind of interested in getting in on it at the beginning. The original group of drivers for a lot of, for both companies was actually on average better educated. And that's just kind of a marker for class, a class position, I think. And I think that the companies used that and used the kind of buzz around the jobs and the bonuses to get more people. And then they just needed bodies in the driver's seat. But they also used that uh, representation of their drivers as doing this fun gig tech thing to get out of the background checks and things that uh, cab drivers and um, others have done. So there's there's tension around what they're really doing, what they're really paying. And then there's tension around how they're using the buzz around what they're really doing and paying to get bodies into the seats. You call it the runway of social trust. Yeah. <laughs> that, like, that really is important for understanding the platform economy, understanding you know, really the tech, big tech in general. This is a, this idea that you have that there is an initial narrative phase for these companies that is closely associated with their raising venture capital that we have to understand as distinct from the mature phase. Yeah, that's great. So if you look at all the tech companies, Google, Facebook, all of the big ones, even Apple, to some degree, they start out with a really positive social image. And then they all start out as venture capital funded companies. So they have a venture of capital that I'm describing it as they have a runway of capital. That's the industry term. And they have to get to market share dominance before that venture capital runs out. And that's why they want growth over profit. They're all starting. I mean, most of these companies are still running in the red, but they need to get market dominance before that runway of capital runs out. They also need a runway of social trust. They need to seem like they're doing something good in the world before they run out of capital. Then once they get there, Google does this right there, don't be evil is their big thing. And then they have total market dominance and then they can be perfectly evil because then they're too big to fail, essentially. Lyft really got started much more so than most of these companies by positioning itself as the angelic alternative to Uber, which really started off with a lot of market dominance, but also is a kind of really big public reputation as being evil. Uber is evil. And that was a hashtag. It was right? on me. <laughs> I remember deleting Uber and putting a lift on my phone at a very specific moment. I did too. Look, they, they gave it, I mean, I'm married to an ACLU lawyer. They gave a big public donation. I absolutely deleted Uber and took lift up at that time. But none of this means that Uber isn't doing all of those evil things. Uh, it just right. means that the runway of social trust that Lyft is using is based on very little. So I was interested in that representation, but then at the same time, the worker interest, is Lyft actually protecting women more than Uber? Is it actually more progressive? And I actually spoke to drivers, women drivers who were like, yeah, you know, I was vaguely aware that Lyft was supposed to be a little bit better for women. So I chose that one. Um, so those can have meaningful effects on the market, both the market for users and the market for drivers. Um, and there are very real social fabric questions around when you're getting into cars with strangers, like the, the safety of the cars, but also the safety of the drivers, safety of passengers. Women drivers who drove for Lyft were talking to me about, yeah, I chose Lyft, but then, you know, people would get in my car and harass me and 
um, would get out of my car and the company isn't really, most of these people have very low expectations that the companies are going to do very much for them. They're not naive about this, but that doesn't mean that the narrative around the company doesn't still matter to how they make their choices, which means it has an effect on the bottom line for the companies. So that's what I mean by the runway of social trust. And Lyft in particular has really changed the way people understand the social space of the ride. Like the, the relationship to the rideshare companies is pretty different than the relationship to taxis. And Uber started that too. They had their original campaign was very much about this is the luxury butler for everyone. Hmm. And Lyft really pushed against that when it was pushing against Uber being evil. They were like, no, this is like your buddy picking you up on their spare time. And they had the pink mustaches on the car. And they were very much saying, this is not the help. This is a, a cool gig economy driver who's a creative person and who's supporting their creative dream by doing some flexible work for Lyft. And that turned out to be a much more appealing narrative for both drivers and riders. And that was part of how they built flexibility. The idea of flexibility is part of being creative into their brand, but it was also very real for drivers. That autonomy, that ability to get into the car, drive for a few hours, and then either go pick up your kid or go to your audition or go to your other gig job, whatever it is. So that's one of the thing, other things I talk about, about what flexibility really means for people who are working is it's not working for a regular boss. And that can have huge impacts for people's lives to be able to use those few hours to make money is really, really meaningful. Not only do you have bosses in the straight world. I like the idea of straight work. I was calling it all straight work. It's a useful term. Not only do you have bosses who aren't paying you, but the hours suck. Shifts are really punitive for a lot of people. So flexibility becomes this thing that people really, really need. And then the crucial element that Lyft does is it not, not only is it saying that it's cool and you're not the help, but it pays you really fast. Lyft was venture capital funded. These The rideshare companies have all this money in the bank, um, which they are then parking in tax havens offshore, by the way. So they're reliable in a way that many companies aren't. But they're also, they pay you really fast. They took that and made that part of what flexibility means for these workers right off the bat. They will have this express pay system. Look how much people respond to this. You can get into the driver's seat really fast. There's no license. There's no medallion. There's no background. And even when the background checks got implemented, they're easy. And it's, it's really fast. You get there and you get it fast. You can get a car fast if you want to rent one. Or you can get your money really fast. And so all of the behavioral economic research that says, hey, these people are um, reacting to shocks, financial reserve shocks, that shock systems are behavioral economic ways of saying people need money fast. And that's what flexibility really is. Uh, as you go through the, you know, you're working, something happens, you need that money and you need to be able to pick up your kid at three o'clock because that's when school gets up. That's what flexibility really offered to people. And it just made all of these things possible and they would pay you. But that was part of the runway of social trust too. We're gonna pay you fast. We're gonna pay you reliably. Within 72 hours of getting into the car, you can get that money. And that's so much more reliable than a payday loan. <laughs> and that's what I really think you need to 
compare these things to. That book, Uber Worked and Underpaid, I think is a really great book. And part of what I want to do is put all of this in conversation with the cooperative platform movements, which I think could be really, and I would love to hear what you think about this too, Heather. I think those could be really amazing for culture work too, for porn workers as well. So I'm really behind that work and that book and the way he's thinking about it. But even in that book, he's saying that flexibility is a myth. You know, you're, you're going to drive these really long hours. It's a myth. And I just, I don't think that that is listening to why people want flexibility. It's not a myth. It's very real. <laughs> and you've got to really understand that if you want to be a labor organizer to get collective platforms going. Because I think the collective platforms, the cooperative platforms could offer flexibility. Mm -hmm. But we've got to be thinking about radical flexibility. Something that doesn't say, oh, you don't need that money that fast. Yeah, you do. Mm -hmm. You know, Heather talks about the fact that <laughs> the euphemistic economic shocks to the reservation wage, right? Like that was one of the ways in which porn sustained itself at a, in a previous era, right? That they, the assumption was people did it because they needed money fast. <laughs> it suggests one of the things I want to ask Heather about later is her thesis that essentially porn is on the cutting edge of the the economy that we are now all in. But before we go that direction, you since you were doing the field work for this research, there are two platforms which have sort of achieved or risen to market dominance that I'm interested in your interpretations of. One, you know, Michelle said only fans, right? Mm -hmm. The other is TikTok. They both seem relevant to the two industries that you're talking about. Michelle ends her piece with talking about the radical nomad. Certainly TikTok has become the venue for monetizing the radical nomad through van life, et cetera, right? And both of these platforms have clearly become one way for porn workers to gain some greater profit sharing control, perhaps a runway of trust during this phase. Um, and so I wanted to, to see how you had been thinking about the gains of these two platforms that have really happened in the last year or two years, probably after you were doing the research for these pieces. You know, the ownership of TikTok and, and its relationship to the other platforms is a big open question. Mm -hmm. Cause of course it's, it's Chinese. Right. Cause I, I do, I am the piece trying to think about, um, the way that cars have become shelter, importantly, for so many people, that's going to ch continue to change the way that people relate to funding them, renting them, using them, selling them. <laughs> I don't think we're anywhere near anything like an ending on all of that. People who live in their cars or live in their vans now are really explicit about the idea that they're not homeless and that they don't want to use that word anymore. <laughs> they want to say houseless or they want to say van life. And I think that is a trend that we're at the beginning of right now. <laughs> What's going to be important is thinking about how the big vectors of global financial capitalism are organizing what's possible for people while also continuing to listen to them. So the woman that I end on in the piece is uh, Katie Carney, who's, I mean, I just follow her YouTube channel, <laughs> but she is making a living as a influencer and a, she also has done work in consumer service, gig work in consumer service. And she does that all virtually remotely, you know, has lived on and off for years in her car and is very proud of what she's done and doesn't want any pity, but she represents a kind of person that I think 
people looking for ride share organizing and other type of organizing need to be aware of and respectful of. <laughs> That's where I would say all of the TikTok families and that stuff, we have to think about both the structures behind them that are making this possible. And then you got to listen to people, that, how they're representing themselves and also how they're working. I think like where I'll start in thinking about both the, this runway of trust language and also the structures that put out particular messages about what platforms do. I think the thing that I suspect is specific to the porn work context, but may not be, maybe uh, rideshare scholars just haven't figured this out yet. I don't know. But, um, but in the porn work context, it's not that venture capital develops platforms like OnlyFans, but that sex workers develop that technology and then venture capital appropriates it. And so that, I think, really shifts how we talk about both the discourse of platform flexibility and also, you know, obviously, like what how its history bears upon its ethics in the present. So, so much of what enables that appropriation and then the patterns of extraction that come from that is anti-sex worker policy. And that's where this case really does differ from other gig work. One of the questions that I get often ab about this book is like, what about platform cooperatization? Often that's coming from male Marxists who ask the question as if sex workers have never considered it. <laughs> like, um, often I also get uh, email offers to develop the app as if sex workers don't know how to code. But to say, sex workers talk about this possibility all the time. And again, it's their creative workarounds of the studio system that developed this technology in the first place. But because of anti-sex worker policy uh, and tech surveillance, particularly following 2018's FOSTA-SESTA, um, it's just not possible to organize oneself autonomously. So I think that's something to look at, the ways that policy creates dependence on predatory platforms. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, the... the cooperative platform horizon is such a, an exciting possibility. There's just a lot of back-end work that would have to happen in order to make that possible. So it's the, the yeah. regulatory arbitrage arm of venture capital is what is necessary for something like OnlyFans to, to gain market dominance as much as it is the capital itself, right? Or, or the technology. Yeah. yeah. I'm really drawing on Sanjuk Paul's work. <laughs> She's looking at how worker-owned collectives can be kneecapped legally mm. because of antitrust law mm -hmm. while the big uh, tech monopolies, it's the only thing to call them, are not. Mm -hmm. um, so that's another big hurdle that people need to think about. And I'm just going to jump in here very briefly and mention that We'll drop a link to Sanjukta Paul's work in the episode bibliography, but she was also a guest on the American Vandal last year in our episode on antitrust. And she talked about this work that is uh, season two, episode 12 from July of last year. In, in the rideshare space, the economic agent holding the space was definitely taxis at least in New York, that they that the writers had to go after. And they really did. They had to uh, break everything that they had built. I think one of the things that sometimes people imagine is that the taxis were just this archaic old form that was somehow like evolving out of, and that's not the case. And the, the taxi drivers organized and did a lot of the work that is now helping other rideshare organizing 
the wildcat strikes that the drivers did here were in conjunction with those folks. And then, of course, the taxi drivers suffered enormously. Mm-hmm. The suicides among the taxi driver community in New York got a lot of press, I think rightly, as a way of kind of bringing attention to how hard the the rideshare people had to fight to get into that market. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was it was a war, you know, and then they fought and then this is what happened. But in other cities, taxis were not as much of a presence, partly because they hadn't created these collectives and forms. There weren't there wasn't a medallion system. It wasn't as dense. Um, and the the rideshares really did create something in, in a lot of American cities that didn't exist before. And it, they changed transit patterns. But they didn't do what they said they were going to do. They came in saying that they were going to use people's existing cars to take miles off the streets. And it seemed like it was going to be an environmental possibility. And they also promised that they were going to take drunk drivers off the roads because there weren't there just weren't a lot of transit options for people when the bars closed. And the research suggests that they didn't do any of those. <laughs> they didn't take cars off the street and they didn't really, they don't seem to have increased drunk driving, but they don't really materially seem to have. Um, lowered it either so it's not the extractive I don't think it's the same as um, taking over like only vans taking over something that workers have actually already created but the cooperative platforms are going to have all these different hurdles right Mm -hmm. one of them is you need access to not only the platform the technology of the, the coding you need the network itself you need the number of people but then you need the data and so one of the things that Lyft and Uber are doing is privatizing all of this data you can't survive competitively as a network without the access to the data. There is actually a nonprofit uh, organization that's trying to aggregate the data for drivers. So the drivers will need, in the space that, that I'm looking at in this chapter, right, the drivers would need the data, they need access to the technology, and then they would also need, you need to work with the city. Mm-hmm. Because one of the things that the private private companies are doing is extracting all of this value from the infrastructure that's public. Mm-hmm. And the taxis, the medallion system was kind of semi-public. Right. But you need public regulation. There's no way to have a, a transit system, right? Like they have to work with the city as well. And that's so one of the things I talk about in the article is Lyft does this City Works PR campaign where they're kind of trying to present themselves as if they are working with the city when they're not. They're just extracting value from it. Mm-hmm. But any collective platform would also have to work with the city itself. I don't think, and I'm sure there are Marxist scholars who would disagree with me on this. I think these are huge hurdles and it's not like this is all easy. <laughs> and it's not like the right drivers haven't thought about this and are working on this. I don't think it has to be the city itself that does this. And there's a lot of worker resistance to the idea that it would be fully public. Mm -hmm. And I think those are important questions. And there are a lot of economists, left economists, thinking about this stuff. I'm certainly not the only one. But I don't think it has to be city-owned. I think it could be Mm worker-owned. I think absolutely. And I think that's what we should be fighting for sex workers' struggles around these questions, uh, what labor protection you know, can or should look like can be so instructive here, where very few people are demanding a better, more rationalized state apparatus. You know, I think that there is a, a particularly anti-state, for obviously good reason, thrust in, in sex worker movements, but I think that most workers don't actually want that kind of control. I think they do want autonomy. I um, think it's really crucial for labor scholars to honor that 
And I guess I just wanted to say one thing as you're bringing up the, the taxi cab medallion system and struggles over this is just what it would look like and for labor scholarship more broadly to remember how awful that system was too for working people. <laughs> so, you know, I always say like, I don't think we should talk about the, the harms of OnlyFans system without talking about what was wrong with the studio system. And we shouldn't talk about the, what's wrong with Lyft without talking about what it was like to, to work on the medallion system. Especially if you weren't a medallion owner. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Right. In a way, the medallion system is like what you talk about in in porn work about when workers become managers, right? And then they're only they see their only path to safety as exploiting the people who are coming up beneath them, right? Which absolutely happened in the medallion system. Absolutely, yeah. So it's just this task of of critiquing present conditions without romanticizing past ones that mm-hmm. seems to elude sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's absolutely crucial. And when I, I, when I think about antitrust, this is often one of the things that I, I come to is, yes, the, the big tech companies have exploited and extracted, but so did Walmart, so, so did Best Buy, so did Blockbuster, right? The big box stores that they have eviscerated, there was a previous era of them eviscerating, right? And I do think that not romanticizing that one generation removed is crucial. And when, when Michelle was talking about the potential for collaborations between municipal governments and collective rideshare organizations, I couldn't help thinking of one of your chapters, Heather, the, the I think it was Nina Hartley, one of the people you were interviewing says, like, maybe the state should pay. Mm-hmm. There is a kind of necessity for thinking about what is going to be the relationship if you can work around the venture capital that oftentimes what they are bringing to the table is that ability to arbitrage with the government mm-hmm. how are you going to manage those relationships with government whether it's local state or or federal and probably the chapter i most identify with in heather's book is called i'm kind of always working but it's also almost always really fun <laughs> and in it, the, the porn workers you interview explain how their lives have become sort of like nesting dolls of side hustles. Right? And I think the workers that Michelle describes probably sympathize, right? Where even when they are not on set, the, those porn workers are self-promoting, they're doing body work, they're investing, they're building entrepreneurial ventures, they're dancing. Like many academics, I really empathize because I've reached the point where like every book I read, every show I watch, every purchase I make cannot really be excavated from my scholarly identity, from the production of courses and references and publications and podcasts and tenure and promotion portfolios. Like I'm kind of always working. And a lot of it is, if not fun, exactly is sort of self actualizing, but the blurring and bleeding between work and life is also toxic. And while it can be presented as a part of the process of better controlling and owning one's labor, it can also be part of depressing the value of that labor. And you quote uh, Annalise Orlick's quip that we are always we are all fast food workers now, but your book seems to imply we're all porn stars now. <laughs> a little unsettling, but maybe points towards the idea of reorientation, which Michelle raises at the end of her essay. And so if one of the th- theses of 
about porn work is that the fringe economy of porn from the 80s to the early aughts prefigured the gig economy in its now pervasive and hegemonic form, then porn workers have been adapting to and resisting the casualization of their labor for decades. Mm -hmm. And so what have they learned? And what have you learned from them that the rest of us, maybe specifically those of us in academia, should know? (laughs) That's a great question. I mean, first, I want to say, like, before video porn, that that sex workers and domestic workers more broadly, I think, prefigure this. So there's this, this, like, long archive of of racialized and feminized workers who have never not been gig working to look to. So I'm not arguing that that porn workers are unique in that. But I do think that, you know, for our purposes and thinking about the boogeyman of platformization, they have something particular to say. So yeah, am I suggesting we're all porn workers now? I think I'm saying that we all could be if we got savvy, but I do think that that porn workers are a lot craftier than many straight workers, academics included, that they come to the table with less romantic um, narratives about what work means and that that prepares them to be more nimble. And I don't mean that um, in a Richard Florida way, but, um, but to say, to think about what it means that even people who don't identify as anti-capitalist, porn workers who don't identify that way, will talk about the work process as directors and platforms taking something from them. As anyone who's been recently trying to organize on campus, perhaps around COVID policy, like many of our colleagues cannot get there. And so I think that that's part of it. I also think that because porn workers like other sex workers know that there are some liberal assimilationists among them, but most people would say that the state will never have them. And I think that that also prepares people for a kind of wiliness around these questions, a kind of refocusing on mutual aid rather than the the kind of impossible battles for reform. Um, there's a sex worker writer, Irene Silt, um, who says that that reform is like trying to give a John a hand job after he's been doing coke for three hours. Like it's pointless. You're ne- it's never going to get you where you want to go. You have to do it anyway sometimes to make your rent. And I think this is so evocative, right? And, and really feels like reform efforts broadly. That is all to say, what, what can people learn from porn workers? I think rejecting the discourses of the dignity of work, as, as we're looking right now at teachers' union struggles for workplace safety, I'm thinking about how limiting the, the argument that, you know, students' learning conditions or our working conditions, or the reverse rather, how limiting that is around tactics, because then there's no possibility of saying we strike for ourselves. But sex workers say that all the time, which is not a bit against solidarity, but it is saying that, that sometimes workers can and should act on their own behalf without recourse to the social value of the work, the dignity of the work, its legibility to the state. And then the other thing, separating, you know, back to your your phrasing, like if we're all porn workers now, is just that most straight workers have a much more limited access to both the means of production, but also to a kind of brand power that would make striking out on your own possible. And so even when porn workers are dependent on a director or, or a platform, there's still this sense that they could take their show on the road. Um, and I think that, you know, to your question about what this looks like in the academy, I think most academics don't have that that sense of mobility and can feel very trapped. And I think that that can narrow the, the organizational horizon um, as well as the personal one. That's not a very uplifting 
answer to your question. But I do think there's this whole world of tactics, right? Um, if, yeah. if we could only get there. No, I think it's an excellent answer. The taking the show on the road kind of leads me directly into sort of reframing this question for Michelle. Right? They, at, at the end of your essay, after all of this depressing stuff about Prop 22 and about the exploitation of rideshare workers and everything, you end on kind of an uplifting note about how the reorientation of the, the radical nomad reveals a, a way of breaking from the problems with the American dream, right? And the, I think you call it like the picket fence American dream mentality that we have to get away from and that, you know, rideshares, influencers, right? Some of the gig workers that you've been studying show us some paths. And so I would ask you sort of the same question, right? What what have has sort of changed your outlook on labor in general or labor in academia from studying these other systems and these other communities of workers? One thing that I really love in Heather's book is the way she talks about listening to struggle. It's important to listen to struggle and it doesn't mean that they've resolved the tensions. Part of what you do when you listen to them as workers, as who are struggling and who are wily is you don't imagine that we academics who have more stability, I have tenure, right? This golden thing called tenure, but it doesn't mean that I, ha I know something that they don't. In fact, they have something to teach me. And one of the things that I think they might have to teach me is the ways that stability has been used against me, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, that the promise of it has been mm -hmm. used against me in very gendered ways, honestly. There might be ways for me to be wilier and craftier, even while recognizing the privilege that I have because I have this stability. In the Prop 22 stuff, for example, I know a lot of uh, people who work in the world of unions. I have learned from them and I know from them uh, how hard organizing is and how important it is. And I, I believe that, and I believe that, including from people who I think would probably disagree with me where I only come down because, you know, the people that I quote at the beginning of the article who said things like, you know, this is the end of the labor movement. This is, you know, creating this category of worker that's just gonna be used to. I think that one of the things that world of organizing probably needs to see and probably does already see, I mean, these people are, are very smart people as well, but that organizing against Prop 22 can be a both and situation. In fact, um, Michel Ferrer, whose book I quote, he talks about a guy, I think he's a bicycle delivery guy, which I love, but he said, hey, yeah, they organized essentially against the same thing as Prop 22 in France, where they were organizing to win back the category of worker. And of course, in France, the category of worker comes with even more benefits than it does in the States. And he was saying, we're absolutely doing that. And we're ab and it's absolutely just a stopgap measure because that's going to go away. And we, st we still want more. But we want to do that. We want to punish the companies that way by forcing them to pay whatever benefits we can force them to pay through the worker category. And also, our organizing horizon is beyond that. It, we're not going backwards to the kind of Fordist industrial worker. We're never going to get that back. Uh, but we can organize for that and then keep going and organize for something else because that can be used to get the companies to give us something now, or it can be used to punch them, or it can be used to bankrupt them, and then there'll be another company. But our organizing horizon is further than that. And I think the Prop 22 stuff and what I'm trying to learn from these workers and in the way that I think, Heather, you talked 
very eloquently, I think, about learning from them, and that these people can speak for themselves. So in, in talking to ride show organizers and talking to these communities, um, I'm trying to learn how to look beyond the stability that I think I really did, you know, because I tied myself into knots to get to this stable position. And now I'm like, wait, I'm in knots. <laughs> That's what I think I'm trying to learn from the gig workers, from the, from radical flexibility itself. And that's what I think I tried to teach myself. Mm -hmm. we've, Kathy Weeks talks about this too in her amazing book. We need specific demands now, mm -hmm. things like the universal basic income that divorce our ability to survive from our job. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then we want more. Mm -hmm. We want life beyond work. Mm -hmm. And we don't have to apologize for that. And I think the teachers, many of the teachers unions are thinking beyond that. Mm -hmm. if, if there's ever been a time when the teachers unions could say, hey, yeah. don't you need us? You need us. <laughs> and we're organizing for ourselves because mm -hmm. we want to stay alive and we want to thrive. Mm -hmm. Maybe the wrong thread to pull right now, but I think of this moment in an, a letter by T.S. Eliot where he's resigning from Lloyd's Bank and he says, I could have stayed there forever with a, a salary and a pension and a widow's pension and all the luxuries that enslave one. I can't help thinking that sometimes, you know, tenure operates in the same way. How do we negotiate the stability and privilege as opposed to the, you know, the mobility and flexibility? Well, especially, but, especially when there are no, and the institution knows that there are no jobs in my field. Right. Right, absolutely. Right. It's a different kind of <laughs> it, it is. It is. Heather's book ends with this kind of James Livingston echo, fuck jobs. It is said from somebody who, you know, who hasn't read David Graeber or James Livingston, I assume. Oh, oh, he definitely has. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, this is even better. Is it? Is it? Oh, well. Yeah. Wonderful. Then I just made the shithead elitist assumption that both of you have been trying to guard me against. <laughs> Like, what is the, the idea of, of a kind of workplace after jobs? There's no consensus among the poor workers I interviewed around what that would look like. Um, for Connor, who you're quoting, um, who is, yes, a, a reader of Graeber and had him on his podcast uh, before his passing. For him, I mean, his joke is that I'm, I'm really a square because he wants Fourier's lemonade oceans and I'm talking about clean water. Um, so that's one horizon. But for other people, it, you know, they're more modest um, demands for security without state control um, and for autonomy without a kind of total precarity that is this free fall. I follow Weeks here too, Kathy Weeks here too, and saying we're not going to know what we want until we get closer to it. And that has been unsatisfying for some readers of my book. Some people want me to say exactly what I want the future of porn to look like. Right. And I, and I don't feel comfortable doing that. Um, one, because there's not consensus. And, and two, because uh, as Michelle was saying, like our own subjectivities are wrapped up in these same constraints. And so my own revolutionary horizon is constricted by by my here and now but i hope that as we inch closer then we can start dreaming more expansively that's the best i've got that was heather berg and michelle chihara i'm matt siebel this has been the second episode in our series about the world's work for more about this episode please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash gig work. In our first episode, I spoke with Annie McClanahan and Ashish Kapoor Sadiq about the labor conditions of higher education 
You can find that episode in our podcast feeds or at marktwainstudies.com backslash edwork. Next week, I'll be joined by Merve Imre and Anna Cornblue for a conversation about autofiction, auto theory, the personal essay, all as modes of writing peculiar to our time, what Anna auspiciously dubs too late capitalism. Until then, I'll let Dan Reeder sing us out with this season's special theme. I got all, I got all the fucking work I need. I got all the fucking work I need. I got all the fucking work I need. I got all.